From Variety celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. Billie Holiday lived hard in her day, a lifestyle that singer and actress Andra Day most definitely doesn't share. But when Day was tapped to play the iconic performer in the film, The United States vs. Billie Holiday, she decided to go full method. You're hard pressed to find a picture of Billie Holiday without a cigarette or without some drink in her hand. And she also woke up and she drank a you know, fucking pint of gin the way you might drink coffee to refresh yourself in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Or to wake yourself mm-hmm. up. So like, you know, and then just general sexual behaviors. She was definitely a sexual person, you know, with, with men, with women. She loved lingerie. She loved just really pretty, sexy things, which, you know, I'm just kind of like big, giant cotton underwear. I don't really care. And I ain't got no shame. <laughs> so I'm just like, we're not the same in that way, you know. So there were just certain things that I'm like, I got to really, really live her. I'm Jazz Tanke, and on this edition of the Variety Award Circuit podcast, we talk to Andra Day about the United States versus Billie Holiday, which has already earned her an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe win. Additionally, in this episode, we speak to Kenny and Keith Lucas, the brothers who have earned Oscar nominations for the screenplay to Judas and the Black Messiah. But first, on the Award Circuit Roundtable, we talk about the WGA Awards, updated Oscar predictions, and of course, more Ted Lasso. It's all on the latest edition of Variety's Award Circuit podcast, so stay close. Hello, and welcome to Variety Award Circuit podcast. I'm Clayton Davis, Film Awards Editor at Variety, joined today with, who am I talking to first, Jazz Sanke. Hello! Yay! Oh my gosh, the glory. <laughs> Janelle Riley. Hello! I have very bad vertigo, so please excuse anything strange I say. I always knew you were Hitchcock. And Michael <laughs> Schneider. Hey, hey, this is when I wish this was a visual podcast, because Clayton is, is he's, he's sporting the beat poet look this he week. It's, so I'm, I'm looking for, uh, dro- drop us some rhymes or, or something. Yeah. Wish you, wish you, wish you. Rocking the Bose not, uh, noise cancellation headphones so I don't hear my children screaming upstairs. And thank you, Michael, for not pointing out what I look like. I appreciate that. Because <laughs> it's not a good day. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, but well, you know, you've got the believe sign behind you. So that's oh, the most important thing. This really is a thing. Ted Lasso fan it's, cast, which, by yeah. the way, Clayton provides you with a nice segue. A Schneider segue, if you will, because <laughs> Ted Lasso did very well at the WGA Awards the other it night. It sure did. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a continued sign of, of more to come. That's uh, where we're going to be seeing uh, Sudeikis and, and Bill Lawrence and, and the team at a lot of award shows, including the Emmys, uh, picking up some some uh, some trophies. Has Bill Lawrence ever been nominated? Because he's done so many great shows, but I feel like they weren't, you know, Emmy shows per se. Um. I mean, he's come close, right? Let me... D- d- I mean, I guess Scrubs would be? He was nominated for Scrubs, 2006. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, Scrubs, I figure, is probably the closest. I mean, and, and Cougar Town wasn't, but shout out to Cougar Town. I Another. loved Cougar Town. Thank you very much. Which inception of Cougar Town on C- uh, TBS or prior? That's right. I love them both. Okay. I'm all Got here it. for Cougar Town. One of those shows that, like, really, its name didn't fit the show after a couple years. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But uh, Mike, back to Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso for a minute. I, I yeah. did. Uh, I did my first Emmy predictions on Gold Derby. You know, because they were asking for it. Uh-huh. Uh, have you looked at the comedy like lineup? Like of like what's going to be in contention this year? It like it'll be baffling how 
Ted Lasso could lose. Like, I, I almost <laughs> wa- I almost want to say it's Lord of the Rings Return of the King type of, like, assurance. Like, it's flight attendant. Don't which, you uh, do that. Don't listen, you do the that. The flight attendant's <laughs> going to be a big thing behind it, obviously. But then we're in the last season of Kaminsky Method. Blackish, Cobra Kai, Pen15, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, Dickens. Like, these aren't, like, these don't seem like the ones that How would unseat it. I, yeah. I just I just feel like it's so Ted Lasso. That it was just it was my yeah, observation. I, of it. I think that that's that's probably the easiest guess of of Emmy season is definitely comedy because because you're right it's it's a little bit uh, slim pickings because a lot of things were delayed because of uh, COVID and I mean these are good shows I mean Flight Attendant fantastic Pen Fifteen uh, even though it was a truncated season two it was a great season two um, you know uh, Zoe is is one of those sleepers oh, that people I love are, Zoe. I wish more people were were talking about uh, you know the final season of Superstore because because I think that deserves yes. to be in the conversation as well and that show is going way too soon, um, which rarely happens. Usually they hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's so many more stories I feel like they could have told, and and they're racing now to to finish it up, and and they're finishing it up in in the pandemic. You know, they didn't even get to really you know get back to you know post COVID, but. That's the way of the world. And America Ferrera left, and now she's coming back for the, the last episode. It's like she wasn't gone. Ultimately, she wasn't gone all that long. Um, but and, and so they didn't really get a chance to shine too much with, without her. But, I mean, it was still a great show even without her. It was because uh, it's such an amazing ensemble. So... You know, that, that'll be one of my goals of this Emmy season is to trumpet Superstore one more time. Let's, let's give it some proper farewell. The man has an agenda. Look at that. <laughs> I do. You heard He's it here first. It. <laughs> you heard it here first. But just to go to Clayton's point, the odds for Ted Lasso to win right now are 4-1. And <laughs> next up is Flight Attendant 11-2. So. Yeah. And I really like Flight Attendant, but I kind of don't think it belongs in comedy. Oh. I don't Laugh is hmm. hard. Not, not, not compared to Ted. I wonder. I wonder. It's a, it's a, it's a I think it could go either way. It's very promising, young womanish. There are so many straddlers now, though. Yeah, right? yeah I mean, it's true. It's true. So yeah. I don't know. Promising young woman. I laughed out loud quite a few times, but maybe I'm just sick. Yeah. I laugh too. <laughs> Listen, I. My go-to example is that Max Greenfield is played for laughs. That is not like a serious dude in the movie. Like he's supposed to be funny. So Well, they all are like like she cast a lot of people from, you know, comedies and kind of plays it subverts that type. Like Sam Richardson has a I may have said this the other week. Um did I mention I vertigo? Um <laughs> but he has a great line when he's like uh just sort of walking through frame where he's like, now you gotta keep it down because my parents are home. You know, like little things like that that yeah. just crack me up. <sighs> But, oh, that's a good segue, though. Promising Young Woman. Hey, hey. Writers Guild of America award winner. Promising Young Woman. Now, beating out, yeah, beating out Travel to Chicago 7, but Minari was not nominated. Was not not eligible. Was not eligible, thank you, um, for original. So it will still have to go against that at the Oscars. Yeah. Listen, I I think we're, Promising Young Woman challenger will come from whoever wins SAG Ensemble. So, Trial of the Chicago 7 or Minari? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the challenger. Uh, she, if she wins Oscar, I've written about this, uh, it'll be out by the time, she'll be the first solo 
screenwriter winner since 2007, Diablo Cody, Juno. Um, if her and Chloe both win, first time two female solo screenwriters will win in Oscar history. Chloe also not eligible for the Nomad Land script over an adapted, so it went to Borat. Bore mother effing rat. I like, love it. That was an amazing moment. It solidified my feeling that Maria Bak. I'm with Janelle. Maria Bakalova is winning an Academy Award this well, year. Well, welcome to October, because yes. that's how long I've been saying it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen. I've, I've always. I, I'm not like the rest of the internet though that said like she's gonna miss. She's like it's impossible. Yeah. Like, She'll be lucky to get nominated. Yeah. No. No. I like. I think it's a fifty-fifty, and I think right now. I mean, the category is wide open, but I think if she wins SAG, no matter if you think there's an upset, I don't know how you don't predict her to win Oscar at that point. Mm -hmm. Because she'll have everything. Everything. Except for Globe, which doesn't really count. Which doesn't count because it was in Leeds. It was like Alicia Vikander, the year of the Danish Girl and Ex Machina. She got a few lead nominations for Danish Girl. She lost all those, but anytime she was supporting, she won. So I think that's it. Yeah, I don't know how people are still like she's not going to win the Oscar. Like, look so at, bizarre to me. Look at the race so far, and like you said, Janelle, there's o- there's openness to it though. It could still be anyone else. It, it could be. I mean, that's the thing is that if there's like some sort of an upset, people will say like, "See, I knew it." By the way, that's the collective internet's voice. Apparently, ooh, I knew it. <laughs> film, film Twitter. Hashtag film Twitter. We're looking at you. Everyone should have a good serious conversation on film Twitter. It's really useful to your life. <laughs> Um, no, also, yeah, sarcasm but, translates really well <laughs> yep, <exactly>. on Twitter. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Olivia Coleman, she could, she's never won a SAG before, and they're notorious for re uh, going back and correcting a mistake that Oscar got it right and they got it wrong. So she only lost SAG her entire season of The Favorite. So she could win. YJ obviously can still win if mm-hmm. if Minati has a great Big day. Time. People um, love her. Yeah. It's getting a lot of buzz right now, too. Like, people are really starting to talk about Minari. It's having its moment. I mean, it's it's been having a moment, but it's really, it's catching on a but lot. But it's surging. Um, I feel pretty confident that Amanda can't win, just by history standards. She has no BAFTA. She has no SAG. And people will say, Regina King, as the example. However... When Regina King was nominated, she won everything. She won Globe. She won Critics' Choice. So th- I Amanda, can still see Amanda winning in a in a situation where you know it's really <laughs> all over the place. Yeah, yeah. For, I mean, that's the thing. I, I can say that because anything can happen. You know. Yeah, and you know what's funny? I think BAFTA is not going to clear anything up for us. I think nope. someone. I think Kosar Ali. I think it's her name from Rocks. I think mm-hmm. she's going to win BAFTA. Really? Yeah, I think it's going to be someone that like. I'm sticking with Maria. doesn't even matter to the race. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll really stick with Maria at that point. <laughs> I was just going to jump off your Amanda point, but does anybody really like Mank enough to... They like her. Vote for her. And, like, even people who don't like... And, and there are people who love Mank. Um, and even people who... I actually don't know anyone who doesn't like Mank. I mean, I think it's pretty much respected across the board. Um, and a lot of people single her out as the best thing about it. And she's just, she's just so great. Like, you know, we've been watching her for so many years and it's, you know, and, and she's always opposite these huge movie stars and elevating them. And I feel like never gets the credit she deserves. 
she she does get like kind of a a lot of best in show mm-hmm. reviews, and I, well, I, I I do talk to people who don't like the film. However, ten nominations later, you can't say like it's hated. Right. So right. So if, if you're gonna throw it something major, and because you're not gonna do Fincher over Chloe, you're not gonna do Picture, obviously. So at that point, you know Amanda, and you're not gonna get to Gary over Chadwick because the Earth would be scorched at that point. So you just do Amanda, and I think you can do it in a way that. Like, I don't think anyone cares. Like, if Amanda, if Amanda won, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Amanda's yeah, sick. nobody would object Man- to yeah. that. Like, everybody loves her. She has an yeah. Oscar. That's cool. Yeah. She's a new Marsha Gay Harden. She <laughs> won with nothing coming before it. Um, and then adapted, uh, back to adapted in Borat. So Nomadland, obviously, uh, wasn't eligible. Neither was the father. Mm. And I think the father is the upset pick to Nomadland. Um... And if, uh, as I said before, if Chloe and Emerald both win, first time female solo screenwriters win, coincidentally, because Emerald has three nominations, Chloe has four most nominated women, there's two other women that received three nominations, were also the same year, Sofia Coppola and Fran Walsh for Lost in Translation and Lord of the Rings Return of the King, they both won screenplay. But mm. Fran Walsh shared her Oscar with Peter Jackson and Philip Boyens. So I was telling, I was talking to Emerald Fennell, uh, Fennell today um, that when women show up to the Oscars, they come in rolling deep and they just yeah. take everything. <laughs> so I think it's a good, uh, good assumption for the, for, the, for the movie. Have you seen Promising Young Woman yet, Michael Schneider? Uh, I have not yet. Oh wow! You really should. It's the next. It's the next one on the list. He's I just got TV. the just got the screener. There's there's a lot of good TV. Yeah. So next week you'll what you'll you'll have seen promising. Oh, let, let's give them realistic expectations. <laughs> when you have time, yeah. Michael. That, have before time. the Oscars. Before Hopefully. the Oscars. Yeah, before the Oscars. Fine. So my, my homework, I, I'm also still with the kids, uh, still going through the, the rest of the animated films we haven't seen yet. We've oh, seen. What, what 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 are you? What haven't you seen? Uh, so let's see. We've seen Soul. We've seen Onward. We've seen Over the Moon. So we haven't seen Wolf Walkers or Sean the Sheep <gasps> movie Farmageddon. Oh, oh my god! god. I Watch love Wolf Walkers. Yeah. What? So Wolf Walkers, I think, is next for family movie night. Actually. Yeah. yeah so that's a good, so good. So I'm excited for that. That's the upset pick to Soul. I mean, even though Soul's running away with it, I think. Yeah. But if there's a, if we're number two is clearly Wolf Walkers. It's so well done. Shout out to Cosby and Saloon for their 2D animation. And then just status check on acting races. Uh, we we don't really need to talk about actor, right? Like, do we all feel good about actor? Or is anyone, or is anyone sensing something? <laughs> I'm saying it could still be Anthony Hopkins or Riz Ahmed. I'm waiting for SAG to solidify it. Okay. I think that's a fine apprehension to have because fact one He's the only nominee in his field that's not from a Best Picture nominee. And in the history of the Oscars, where that's happened, only four times has the person that's not from a Best Picture nominee won in the category. Went against other Best Picture nominees. So it, 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 it could, I think Chadwick wins, but yes, I think the upset pick is, is debatable. You said Anthony. I think it's Riz. Uh, yeah, I mean, Riz has been out there. It's such a fantastic performance. People love that guy. Did you see his uh, tweet the other day? 
with his cousin. How, yeah, his cousin was like, "What's the big deal? I was named best branch manager or whatever." And I, I <laughs> that, love that perspective. Went total, total viral. So and that's what cool. I was what, what, I, what I was thinking when when you guys were talking about potential upset. People do love Riz. He's everywhere. He's just mm-hmm. so. Uh, you know, someone who you root for. So, and and something that if if he did upset, I don't I don't think people would be too mad. No, like, everyone, people, no. People, yeah, that's people, the thing. people don't like besmirch it. They're like, okay, that that's cool. And Sound of Metal did really well on the day. It really did. And with Paul Racy in there, it gives me an, an extra shot of uh, I guess hope for Riz. Yeah, who I believe I believe Paul Racy is also the upset to Daniel Kaluuya. See, I don't think people would be upset if Anthony did Anthony no. or Riz upset. Yeah. Not if they'd Charlotte. seen the movie because they're right. stunning. Well, that that's a different discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Regular people don't watch all the movies, so then they all they see is Chadwick Boseman losing, and then people are infuriated about. Yeah, it. that would be a storm in itself. I censored myself there, but um, yeah, and, and also to just add the fact of. The other two posthumous winners in history, Peter Finch and Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger also passed before the movie came out, and it felt so definitive that entire season. Maybe because there wasn't like a clear number two of like who would you give it to if you're not going to give it to Heath. Peter Finch passed like two. I think it was like two weeks before the Golden Globes. Like he like wow. it was like in that January. It was like right after the New Year. So it was very fresh and then just like rattled, you know, up to the Oscars. This has been like a long game for, you know, the Chadwick camp. So it, it, people may just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do something else. Look, any of them would be great. Yeah. There's three fantastic. Pro- I mean, the whole category actually hmm. is fantastic performances. Uh, we talked about supporting actors, about supporting actor a bit. I mean, supporting actor, we feel good at Daniel's there. Does Lakeith mess it up at all for Daniel? I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think, I don't think vote splits really happen all that often. Michael Schneider, have you seen Judas and the Black Messiah? No, I haven't seen much so far. Well, now you can't watch an HBO Max because it went away the day before the nominations. <laughs> no, That's <I> strange. <laughs> but it's he's, still, what, he's still an animated feature. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's working his way up the prediction <laughs> chart. Exactly. Next yeah. best sound. <laughs> that means he saw Pinocchio already. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think, I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen, have it a year. Very good in Travel the Chicago 7. And then Leslie, both Chicago double 7. nominated. Yeah. I don't see Travel the Chicago 7 going home empty handed. Good, good question. What does it win? Editing. A- editing. Maybe. Good shot at screenplay. Still, I say. Yeah, it's one of the three for sure. Ah, yeah. I'm very curious to see how SAG plays out. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is gonna be it's gonna be a rough one. All right, and actress. This I thought we felt like we had this figured out a few weeks ago, and I don't know if we have it figured out anymore. Oh, really? I mean. The Andrew camp is happening. Like, like when I say the camp, like, I think she's the upset. Yes, that I agree with. If if Carrie wins SAG, I'm pretty sure I will go with Carrie at Oscar. If she loses SAG, we have an interesting dilemma. Because then we get to BAFTA, and the only nominees there are Francis and Vanessa Kirby. And I kind of feel like Vanessa Kirby is going to win BAFTA. 
So then we'll have Andra with Globe, whoever we're talking about the upset pick at SAG. What if it's Vanessa Kirby? If it's Vanessa Kirby, if Vanessa Kirby went SAG and BAFTA, like someone told me on the slide, they were like, listen, everyone's been saying this is a Carrie Francis kind of race and Andrew, and they said secretly they felt like it's a Carrie Vanessa because they appealed to the European international group, young ingenue, new on the scene, keeping up with keeping up with the crown wins of the night (laughs) with Emerald. I thought back in, I guess, September or whenever, when I saw Pieces of a Woman, that Vanessa was going to be very, very difficult to beat. And a lot of great, I guess, challengers came along. And, yeah. you know, uh, things have sort of shifted. But, my God, she's wonderful in that movie. She is super. Isn't she my personal winner? I'd be okay with it. But, you know, it's different. It's one of my favorite films of the year. I do think she's going to get a lot of... She's going to get a huge surge from BAFTA... Because I think she's going to run away with that. And then it's a three-horse race, right? Andra, Carrie. I mean, I, I, I think it's like a four or five. I mean, I, like, I think, I don't know if I feel like any of them could win. Like, I think I'm, I think I feel really good that three are in the mix. I kind of, I also feel, I don't know if I, I feel like I'm coming off the fact that Francis can't win that. Only because she's going to win picture, obviously. She hasn't campaigned, and it's her third, and I feel like they're very particular about multiple... I mean, look how long it took Meryl to get a third, you know? Mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis did it pretty fast, too, but... Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the film goes for a sweep. If we're talking about Nomadland sure. goes six for six, then sure. Uh, oh, by the way, I wanted to ask something about the WGA, if I may loop back, um, Clayton, because you actually watched the award show live, quote unquote. I, I did. Um, did they I, pre- I, I did too. That was... <laughs> did they pre-tape their acceptance speeches? Because it looked like when they were accepting, they didn't really know if they had won. Yeah. If it, that it was, makes it was, sense. It was, it was pre-taped. Ah. See, and that's what SAG's going to be like, which is a little bit of a bummer, because I do love that. Gen- I mean, look at when Andre Day won uh, the Golden Globe. Like, that response so genuine and, well, the, and the, the, cool. The, the difference with SAG is that it's going to be all the nominees together in a Zoom that's room. That's right. So at least they will sort of, you will get that exciting. Like, they'll know that they won. as Right. They They're not just ex- pre-recording a speech. Yeah. You're absolutely so. right. I need to see people's agony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you might, so you might get that with SAG at least, because they're they're gonna have like all five people there, like you know, and and so you'll have the disappointment, uh, and you'll have the winner. Now, will it just look like another Zoom room, or will it actually work? Because as we saw with the Zoom rooms on the Globes, that didn't necessarily work. It was awkward. They weren't sure if they were talking to each other. I always go back to the Daniel Kaluuya moment. Like, listen, I, I, the the Oscars are getting a lot of flack right now. And I don't think deserve like listen. I'll be the first one to like say Oscars, you you mess up. But Oscar, I like saying, how you wagged your finger when yeah, you said like, that. Oscars, no, 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 <laughs> no you don't no. do that. But I will say the Oscars have said you know no Zoom options, and collectively I think the universe was like good because we have not perfected Zoom acceptance speeches. It's the worst part of every show, and Daniel Kaluuya is the prime example of why it doesn't work 
if he starts talking and there's nothing there, and then you come back and it's a little, it's awkward. I also think of the Nicole Bahari moment at Gotham's, which was like a bad moment too, because there's just that delay. And what about people who literally can't make it to the Oscars? I I think there's no option that makes everyone happy. I think that's just where we are. We're in a, like maybe in a month, you know, because we still have, 32 days until Oscar wow. night. Do you have I a know. countdown? Well, I just looked at the date. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to make a chain recording. and rip yeah. off a, a piece every day. <laughs> An advent calendar. I do think uh, we, we were talking about how it's, it's looking like there's not going to be an Oscar host, which I think is a big mistake this year. I think one of the benefits that both the Grammys and the Emmys had is that you had anchors who were able to sort of say, listen, this is weird. I know we're doing a little differently this year. This is how we're going to do it. And it was kind of relatable. You, you sort of were rooting for, uh, you know, both Kimmel and, and Trevor Noah. Globes were a different animal. Um, that was awkward because they were on different coasts. And, and I think that it just, there were things that they did with the Globes that just, it didn't work. But Emmys and, and Grammys, they found a way to, to make it work and, and to, you know, sort of lean into the awkwardness of the year. We're doing a little different. So Grammys especially. I think yeah. Grammys were the best award show of everything so far. And, 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 and by the way, let's just say this, that, Oscars have not confirmed the deadline report that there is no host. So that's still like up for debate and it's still fluid. I don't personally, I mean, listen, I I think there's a bunch of options on the table. I don't know how you don't go with a host. Yeah. For multiple. Like you can't. You can't. You need someone wrangling everything. You need someone to connect, especially for multiple. Like they cut, well, you just gotta cut to the Dolby and then just someone sitting there. Like it's gonna. Be weird. Now, listen, we, I know we have, I think it was reported there's gonna be like uh, maybe 10 presenters or so. So maybe they are essentially a host. And maybe that acts as it. And that's why it's technically not a host. But I, I don't, you can't just have nobody. You need to transition. Otherwise, it's gonna be such, such an awkward viewing experience. Yeah. No, the question is, who do you get at such short notice? Michael Schneider. Are you volunteering? <laughs> Michael Schneider is right in front of me right now. <laughs> I will. I, I I love Union Station. I'll <sighs> head down there. I you know. I'll, you got I'll walk your wedding around. tux. You so, can exactly. I can't fit in that wedding tux anymore. <laughs> but and you can hop on the red right up to Hollywood and Highland, so you can be <laughs> in two places at once. Exactly. I'll be like the Phil Collins, you know, t- taking the uh, uh, what was that the plane the from from uh, Wembley Stadium to JFK for Live Aid or oh, the or Concord. The, the Concord, yeah. Listen, Michael, we can make this super badass. You can do it at the Dolby, and then Jay Penske gets a helicopter, gets you. Pulls you over the train station, you jump out and parachute into the ceremony. Yes, you do. You do the Lady Gaga Super Bowl dive. Right. <laughs> oh no! But no, when you land to the station, you land in like the uh, what Pink used to do in the swing. You land on the swing, you start swinging, and then you just perform. You sing a song, and then you land. It's good. It's a. It's a I it better works. start practicing. I, I know, you, right? I they're, they're getting you Cirque du Soleil. Up I, I, in I believe in you, Mike. I think you're capable of many different things. I well, believe as I well. believe in you. The campaign for Mike Schneider. Ted Lasso 2021. <laughs> Front and back to, to Ted Lasso. Always back to Ted Lasso. Yes, we brought it full circle. Thank we you very much. We brought it full circle. And now we should bring it to the episode uh, because speaking of Andre Day, 
we got Andre Day. Yes. And the Lucas Brothers. And the Lucas Brothers. Who are delightful. And, Han- and, and Hannah Whittingham's going to win the Emmy. I'm just throwing it out there now. Boom. 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 I, I dropped mics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that'll be a whole separate conversation. But yeah, yeah. these feel a little, a little predictable this year. <laughs> 32 days. 32 days. All right. On that note, see you all next week. It's Variety's Award Circuit podcast, and I'm Jazz Tange. Andra Day was just 11 years old when she first heard Billie Holiday's iconic anti-lynching song, Strange Fruit. Even at that young age, Day says she wanted to help Holiday on whatever it was she was singing about. As she got older, the meaning behind the lyrics resonated deeply with her. Now the singer and actress is earning rave reviews, plus an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe win for her performance as Holiday in the Lee Daniels-helmed film, The United States vs. Billie Holiday. The movie follows Holiday as she is targeted by the Federal Department of Narcotics, who wanted her to stop singing Strange Fruit. The defiant Holiday refused, and under the guise of drug abuse, the FBI continued to pursue her. Which one of my songs is your favorite song? Strange Fruit. It's a song about important things, you know, things that are going on in the country. This holiday woman's causing a lot of people to think the wrong things. It's a starting gun for this so-called civil rights movement. Those lyrics provoke people. Y'all got a plan? She's a drug addict. Exactly. I cut strange fruit. I want to sing the damn song. It's for your own good, okay? I sing it the fuck I want. When Day first met with Daniels at Hollywood's Soho House to discuss the movie, she admits she was reluctant to take it on. But after hearing how much she cared about telling Holiday's story, her mind changed. I got to see that it wasn't a remake of Lady Sings the Blue, Day says. I found out that the script written by Suzanne Laurie Parks vindicated her legacy. I recently spoke with Day about the lengths she went through to play Billie Holiday, including taking up drinking and smoking. We also talked about how that immersive approach almost made her want to quit acting altogether. We also talk about working previously with Spike Lee, the stage show she'd like to mount, as well as her next album. But we begin by discussing what it's been like to receive so much acclaim for her first acting role. (laughs) It just felt... um... You know, I don't know. I, I, to be honest with you, I laugh about it. <laughs> I like laugh because I'm like, it just seems so unreal. You know, it's like, like, you know, I don't know. I, I feel grateful. I feel like only God could have put something like this together, you know? And so I just, it feels, it just, it reminds me of just how great God is. It reminds me of Lee, you know what I'm saying? And just how hard he worked on set. My acting coach, Tasha Smith, Tom Jones, my dialect coach, like it reminds me of my entire cast, you know, my co-stars and and just like how much work, how much time, how much care and dedication that people put into this story, into Billy's story, into me even, you know what I'm saying, as a first timer, like it takes kind of a little leap of faith to jump out and to say, all right, she's never done this before, but I'm going to put my hat in the ring and, and believe, you know. So it just honestly makes me just think of everybody and just be thankful and grateful. I keep everybody's like, you got to post something on your Instagram about it. And I'm like, I feel so overwhelmed. I, I've literally gone through 8,000 different posts. What am I going to post? I don't even know. I just feel so overwhelmed by everything. And it's been, you know, just kind of crazy, you know, but grateful. Definitely so much gratitude. So I'm going to ask you, have you had a moment to let the Golden Globe win sink in? 
<laughs> yeah, no, I don't even think I really had time to let that sink in before it was like, hey, also, by the way, you're nominated for an Oscar. I'm like, all right, fuck it. I guess we're on the full speed train. Like, here, here we go. So, um, no, I mean, I got it. I finally actually got it. So it's in my house. It's actually still in the case because I don't know what to do with it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, but it's 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 a heavy little thing. It's kind of crazy. But, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if it's sinking. I don't know if it'll ever really sink in, you know. Um, it just, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm still, it's a whirlwind, you know, sis, you know. Yes. Um, okay, so I'm going to go back. Let's go back all the way before you even sat down with Lee, before you even heard he was doing this movie, what did Billie Holiday's music mean to you? Oh man, Billie Holiday's music to me meant truth. It meant um, triumph and it meant, um, I mean, heartache and um, identity. You know, for me as a young person, it was Billie Holiday's voice and her music that helped me eventually, because I was introduced to her at like 11 years old. And I heard sugar and I heard strange fruit. I just remember being confused by her voice because it wasn't what I was used to as far as the great singers that I knew of, you know, Whitney's and the Gladys and all that. So for me, it really changed. It actually changed and opened up my idea of what a great singer was and what that meant. And um, and also really made it possible that I could be a great singer. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I, I had to really lean into my identity and who I am. So it, it is her voice and her tone and her phrasing that helped me to actually accept my voice and my tone and my phrasing and my contribution to music and to the arts. And it was also what made me go, I want to prostrate people before whatever it is I do. I want them to be sort of enchanted with it the way that I was when I heard Strange Fruit for the first time. You know what I mean? So it has everything to do with just truth and identity. You know what I mean? It's so deep in that, in all of its layers, you know, whether it's happy or sad or angry as, as sort of trite as, as those naming those emotions is but yeah and you mentioned strange fruit which is performed you know in the film and the narrative takes place around that what do you remember about hearing strange fruit for the first time and those lyrics like and how did that evolve you know as you get older you're like wow i didn't realize this is what the message of that song right Mm -hmm. so yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, you know, hearing Strange Fruit for the first, well, when I, again, I was 11 when I first heard it, you know, it was the first, the second song technically that I heard from her. Um, and I just remember being prostrate, you know what I mean, before the speaker, just listening, like, it was confusing, it was kind of scary a little bit, you know, and, but I just felt overwhelming sadness, like I wanted to save her, I wanted to help her, whatever it was she was singing about, though I wasn't fully aware. I knew that it was, I could feel loss and I could feel sacrifice in it and I could feel like sad for her you know it was like a pity feeling bad for her type of thing as a young person um and then as you get older you know you realize you know wow like not just that the lyrics are talking about racial terror not just that the lyrics are talking about lynching you know what I mean Mm. but that she was essentially lynched for singing the song so meaning it's it's deeper than just what she was singing it was more you know the time in which she was singing it and the fact that she had the audacity, right, to sing these lyrics, you realize like it was, you know, the oppression and that, that racial terror, that's an all encompassing thing. And so it just, for me, it was the song, the song means really truth and truth for people who are trying to build up a system of oppression and racial inequity. You got to build shit like that on lies, you know what I'm saying? And you got to control the narrative. So the fact that she was singing, holding a mirror up to the nation, because people don't understand 
the lynching was not something that was happening by the cake that was just the kkk was lynching people the kkk wasn't is everybody you know what i'm saying that's the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the the town officials that's the government of the cities and the states and the federal government it was a practice it was an american practice you know and um so the fact that she was holding such a a, a mirror up to the nation and injecting a system built on lies with truth that's dangerous because that's truth is really the only thing that can dismantle it so yeah i mean it means it's an ugly song that is but it's it's true and it's which is what makes it beautiful you know yeah so let's fast forward to you sitting down with lee daniels at soho house right here in hollywood uh, yeah talking about the movie what did he tell you? What was the, because when, when he first offered it to you, it was a no, right? So what was the yes turning point for you? Well, it was, it was, it was really when my manager first brought it up to me that it was a no, you know, cause I was like, uh, nope, bad idea. And he's like, you got to meet with him. I was like, oh my God, I only wanted to meet with him. Cause I was like, well, you know, it's Lee Daniels. He's a dope creative. So if I want to like make a movie someday, not act in it, you know, then then it would be good to know him, you know what I'm saying? And just to pick his brain, you know, about just, fine, I'll meet with him. That's really what it was. And he, I guess on his end, same thing. He didn't want to meet with me. And his people were like, you got to. He's like, nah, nah, nah. So both of us were really in this meeting, like, uh, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> um, I, I, I did not want to be terrible. But the yes point for me, it was a, it was a series of progression, right, of, of, of things, of moments. And one of them was that meeting, you know, I, I met Lee, I got to see him, I got to see that he cared about telling this story, and I got to see that it wasn't a remake of Lady Sings the Blues, because I love Lady Sings the Blues, I love Diana's performance, I mean, there's just, you know, it, it, that's, that's a culture-making performance, you know what I mean? But I also am a fan of Billie Holiday, so I was aware that it wasn't the true story of how the government went after her, the full true story, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but to find out from Lee that and that the script written by Susan Laurie Parks actually vindicated her legacy and said, no, 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 she was one of the great godmothers of civil rights and that she she really, she was killed for singing Strange Fruit ultimately. They used her addiction against her and that the war on drugs was entrenched in race and it was designed to get her to stop singing that song. That was really, really enticing for me. As a fan of Billy's, that was the first moment. That's what made me go, you know what? I don't want to do this and I'm still not going to do this, but I will audition, you know what I'm saying? And that was like, you know, I, I didn't want to be terrible and I didn't want to dishonor her legacy. I didn't want to let Lee down, you know. Um, and then as we went through the audition process and, you know, Tasha, my acting coach is like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And Lee's like loving stuff. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, no, I'm terrible, bro. I promise you I'm bad. <laughs> like, um, But uh, but then I read a scripture, actually. It was I was doing devotion one night and I read a scripture about walking on water and the, the premise of it basically was instead of running from the storm be caused to do an act of great faith and so I knew in that moment okay I'm supposed to do this I got to trust God I got to trust Lee you know what I mean and and we did we dove in together you know and, and, and I was terrified the whole time but you know it was like it, it started to feel kind of like all right maybe maybe I'm supposed to do this you know yeah um you I mean you did such an incredible job of that uh, you, you you didn't just transform i mean you transformed for this um thank you. you know thank you so much not just it's not just your voice it was like you know the look you you know you took up smoking for this you know yeah. you put <laughs> you put your own voice through 
through a trial to to play Billy. And then, you know, I read that you cut your hair off too to play her. I mean, talk about that transformation. I mean, this is the definition of method acting, right? Like you went all in. (laughs) Which I didn't know. (laughs) To be honest with you, I didn't know. And I I honestly feel like... (laughs) It's amazing that I'm still learning, you know, what these different, you know, uh, methods are, you know, and these practices, mm-hmm. these techniques. Because because my acting coach, Tasha Smith, she trained me in one thing. But she also the thing that she really gave me that was so amazing was like, first of all, she's just a gifted acting coach. But secondly, she 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 was like, you got to be like water. You know what I mean? You got to be like clay in Lee's hands so we can prepare as much. You can prepare, you can fill the margins and do all stuff. But ultimately, if Lee needs you to change at the drop of a dime, you've got to be flexible to do that. You know what I mean? So, but as far as the transformation goes, like, yeah, I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't even have sex, to be honest. And I don't cuss typically. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> before. <laughs> um, but I, you know, she, she, she had like a PhD in cussing. You know what I mean? So it was like, okay, <laughs> there's just certain behavioral character behavioral things that I was like, man, you know, I, I can't, I can't just, I realize that just trying to show up on set and be like, Oh yeah, I'll just cuss and it'll be there. Like, nah, it's something grounding about the way she cusses. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's something very real and very ground. I mean, clearly this woman just grew up and that's all she's ever been doing. That's how she expresses herself best with the cigarette smoking. I mean, you're, my thing was, I don't want to be that person, like in a film where people watch it and they go like, and shit, I still am like, I don't know if I, you know, I, I'm so grateful that people, you know, think it was a great performance. I'm so blessed, you know, but I, but I, I still wasn't sure on set. I'm like, I don't know if I, I'm hoping I'm convincing here and, you know, but you're hard pressed to find a picture of Billie Holiday without a cigarette or without some drink in her hand. And, she also woke up and she drank a you know a fucking pint of gin the way you might drink coffee to refresh yourself in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Or to wake yourself mm-hmm. up. So like, you know, and then just general sexual behaviors. She was definitely a sexual person, you know, with, with men, with women. She loved lingerie. She loved just really pretty, sexy things, in which, you know, I'm just kind of like big, giant cotton underwear. I don't care. And I ain't got no shame. <laughs> so I'm just like, we're not the same in that way, you know, so there were just certain things that I'm like, I got to really, really live her. And for more than just the four months on set, like I had to start this, you know, we started, I started the audition process in 2017. So I started dropping into her from then and then all of 2018, all of 2019 until we finished filming and then 2020. So it's like, and then I did cut, cut all my hair off. Cause Lee just, he likes things very, very natural to look very natural. We had some wigs, but he wants things to look natural. And it was great for me because he doesn't like makeup. He wants the hair to look natural, which is great because I just feel more grounded. I feel like the less fake stuff that's on me, the more I feel like I'm in her. And then we did lose, um, you know, uh, 39 pounds to do almost 40 pounds, I guess you could say. But um, I'm really bitter about that one pound. <laughs> but um you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, and my vocal cords did suffer for sure, you know, it's like, but, but, you know, I, I, I was thinking, you know, so I says, you know, I'm okay with that. Like, I, I just, people, but what about your vocal cords? You know, music is what you do for a living. I'm like, yeah, but right now this movie is what I'm doing for a living and for my life. Mm-hmm. And I might not have a life after this. I don't know what tomorrow brings and what tomorrow promises. And so it just sort of felt like if this is the last thing that I ever do, I want to feel like, okay. I, I gave it everything, you know what I mean? And that's, yeah. and that's cause my relationship with God, my dad taught me that, you know what I mean? So, you know, I, 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 I'm grateful, you know? I mean, when you're living in 
her skin such 24-7. I mean, did you, yeah, you lived in it 24-7, right? How do you let go of that at the end of, I guess, you know, you you say you're still kind of in her skin a little bit because we're talking about it, but like just as soon as Lee said, okay, that's a wrap, how do you slowly start finding, you know, going back to who you are? You know, in that moment when Lisa, that's a wrap, to be honest with you, I mean, for, well, here's the first thing I'll say. To me, I don't know how everyone else does it, you know, um, and just bless them for being able to. But I, I don't I could not have done this without a relationship with God. For me, it is a deeply, deeply spiritual thing and a deeply spiritual experience. And I think it is only that spirit that actually could kind of save me from actually really kind of being a little, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but maybe a little self-destructive, you know, on the, on the end of it, you know, I, I, um, I don't think I really, I wasn't thinking about anything but the moment, right. You know, and that's a lesson probably that I'll have to learn. Um, but I, I wasn't thinking anything about, but about anything but the moment at every given moment. It's like literally operating on adrenaline for four months straight, you know, And I felt like all of my purpose became wrapped up in this movie and in this character. And so at the end, it was just like, not only did I love Lee and I love my cast and I love Montreal and I love the production, I love Billie Holiday. I also loved who I was as her. And I think, yes, people are like, well, there's toxic parts that you can't wait to let go of. And I'm like, honestly, some of them toxic parts felt really, really good. So I, 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 I am now at a much better place, but that for me personally has everything to do with my faith. Once we finish all of this whirlwind of stuff, I definitely want to go sit with a counselor, you know, get some therapy too, to, you know, to make sure I'm healthy and check in, you know what I mean? But, um, but you know, I'm still kind of navigating a little bit, you know, uh, who it is I'm supposed to be in this season and, 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 you know, how she's supposed to be a part of that, how she's not supposed to be a part of that. Like it's, 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 um, it's weird thinking about it every time. Cause I do feel like she's still very present, yeah. but I also feel like definitely more balanced and, you know, there's, there's probably a, a good bit of her that will never, ever leave me, you know? And I, I think only Diana Ross and Audrey McDonald know what I'm talking about when it comes to her spirit, you know, there's a part that I don't think will ever leave and I don't want to ever leave. I like the way she feels in there and how she felt in there. You know, you, know, you mentioned Audrey and you mentioned, Diana, and I'm going to, you studied musical, I'm going to switch things for a bit, but you studied musical theater, right? So is that Mm -hmm. something you would like to do in the whatever's next? Yeah, eventually I would like to actually develop a stage show. You know what I mean? I don't know that I want to actually act in it myself, um, but I do know that that is something I, I, I do. I went to a performing arts school when I was very young, like it was middle school and high school, but I still loved it. You know what I mean? And I love those experiences. Mm. And, you know, and friends of mine have really gone on to do amazing things. Like I have a friend named Chandra Prophet, you know what I mean, who's played Nairobi and Nala in, in Lion King. And she's been doing that for years. So yeah. she's like, you know, is the epitome of success as far as it comes to, you know, what we trained in, like, you know, in musical theater and Broadway. Um, and I have another friend, Jeremy McQueen, who develops, you know, um, Broadway shows and he actually owns a ballet company as well, too. Um, so both black owned, by the way. Um, but yeah, so it, it's it's. um it's something as there, as far as stage shows go, it it is for sure rigorous. You know what I mean? Um, I want to develop some, I don't know that I want to act in them. I want to find the right people for it, but yes, I I love writing and I love creating things. So that's going to translate in 
in in in stage and movies and music and just any any and everything you know whatever inspires me i love that you know you talk about wanting to to you know tell more stories and you know when did you realize that songwriting especially you wrote a lot of the all the songs on cheers to the fall your album like when did you realize like this was the outlet for you to to tell your stories yeah um i was young i was actually really young i mean i was probably like 12 or 13 when i realized or maybe 12 13 14 i think because i didn't really want to write it first because i didn't think i was good at it you know I, i just wanted to be a singer and i just wanted to sing what other people did the way i saw other great singers do you know um but with the times were changing, you know what I'm saying? And that, and I, and I, so it, it, I really just started writing out of necessity. I'm like, all right, well, nobody's going to write these songs for me. So I need to, and also it's out of necessity of like, who's going to write them for me. And when I would have people randomly write for me, I just wasn't feeling the material. And so that kind of was like, all right, well, then I need to, I, I got to put my hat in this ring. And, and I realized it just as I was writing, I realized everything was an observation. Everything was a story. It was something I experienced directly or like that a friend experienced or that I had seen or maybe I saw it even on TV or like. So I just realized I'm a storyteller. You know what I mean? It's a narrative. All of the songs that I write are narratives. And it's a and I like that because I, I like following lyrical journeys like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that it was that age when I just realized like, OK. I want to tell stories. And I think that that's translating even into the movies as well. Cause, cause you know, to be honest with you, I got to tell you, I, I thought I was going to retire after this movie from acting. Cause I was like, this shit is too deep. You know, like I was like, <laughs> I got a whole, I just didn't, I, I've always loved actors, always had a respect for them. Always. But this shit was like, you know, I was like, okay, now I have, I have a whole new respect for them and how deep they have to go. And, you know, and, and I, I thought, I don't, if I had to do something like this again, like, I, I don't know, I, I, you know, I'm, you know, not eating, not <laughs> sleeping, just drinking alcohol, smoke. like, I don't know if I'm gonna survive the next shit, you know, <laughs> but, but now, now being on the other end and seeing how difficult it is often to get stories of, of black stories, PLC stories, marginalized people's stories, LGBTQ, uh, 2S, you know what I mean? Plus, hopefully I said that correctly, stories, you know what I mean? Women's stories, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to get these stories funded and to get off the ground when they're especially being told by the people representing that culture, you know what I mean? Which is so weird, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I realized, I'm like, all right, well, you know, I, I wanted to translate it for storytelling to translate into movies. There's a lot of our narratives that have been suppressed and yeah, I want to tell stories in music and I want to tell stories in movies and, and in TV and film and stuff too, you know? I think I can speak for everybody and safely say that we're all glad you did not retire after this movie. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, um, I'm pretty, pretty cool. I'm, I'm pretty glad I did it too. I'm pretty glad. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go back to Forever Mine. That video was directed by Spike Lee. And what was that like? to be directed by the master. And that was shot at, what, the standard right here, again, in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. it was shot at the standard. He had always, so, you know, interestingly enough, he he actually saw me perform at, at Sundance. I was at the film festival, Sundance. They we I did music, I was performing Mississippi Goddamn from the documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone. Um, and so I performed the song and he loved the performance and he was like, I got the next music video, whatever it is you want to do. I was like, whoa. I was like, well, you got the first music video because I ain't never did shit before, you know? <laughs> so so it was, 
it was kind of crazy, you know, for me being directed by him. I mean, it was nerve wracking. That's the mainly it was an honor and it was so exciting. And I just felt so nervous and uncomfortable. I didn't want to disappoint him. And I was, you know, so it was for me, it was super nerve wracking because he's a legend. You know what I mean? I love his films. I, I could not believe I had this incredible director doing this. And, and he had had this vision. He always wanted to film at the standard ever since he saw the box and saw the model in the box. He just was so like <laughs> taken by that. He's like, what is that? And so he uh, said he had always wanted ever since he'd seen it, he wanted to film something. And so this was like the perfect song for that. He sent over the idea and I was like, yeah, that shit's amazing. You know, but the reality is it's Spike Lee. So I probably would have been, and I was hella young. So I've been like, whatever you want to do is amazing. <laughs> but because it is. Uh, so yeah, so he, we filmed that and it was just like, I mean, it was my first music video and, you know, and he also just did it just on GP, you know what I mean? That's the other thing. I was like, just an artist supporting another artist in a song. I just felt like, damn, you know, that's, that was pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to actually work with him obviously again soon, but I'm still, even if he had only ever done that, I'm so grateful, you know? Well, you've put it out there now. It's out there Thanks. in the ether. Well, again. it went on from him to M. Night Shyamalan for uh, Rise Up. I was like, whoa, what's happening? I was like, I guess we'll just do like maybe Steven Spielberg for the next one then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's all out there now. Um, okay. So what do you do to relax? I mean, you, you know, you've talked about your faith, which is very relaxing, yeah, yeah. but what else hmm. do you do? Or like, you know, what are you listening to? What are you watching? Mm-hmm. Are you reading? Yeah. Um, I, I exercise. I do like exercising. You know what I mean? I, um, I mean, I'm like a comfort food eater too. That's the problem. <laughs> so, like, if I'm being honest, like I want to be like, I just eat really healthy. I'm like, not all the fucking time. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I like to, yeah, exercising is a big thing for me as well. I like, um, uh, yeah, I love reading. There's a book I'm reading right now called Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee. I love reading spiritual building books along with like reading the word and doing devotion and all those things. Um, and I love reading works by particularly like, you know, Asian, like, like Christian philosophers, I guess, you know what I'm saying? Like, but, mm. but people who are not like religious philosophers, does that make sense? Like, it, that, yeah. that's a very nuanced conversation. Cause listen, I got a complicated relationship with them, with the culture, religious culture in America. But um, but as far yeah. as like just, you know, real people who care about like the spirit and relationship, I love reading books of people who have been in extreme duress or conflict, because I think that brings such a crisp a clarity, you know what I mean? And such a yeah. sort of more crystallized perspective of things. Um, so Watchman Nee is, 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 is this incredible Chinese um, Christian philosopher. And I, I just think it's really to me, works like that are just really interesting, you know. Uh, so I, I reading stuff by by him. I, a friend of mine just put me on to Herman Hesse, The Glass Bead Game. Um, and then another friend, there's a book I've been reading forever because it is the hardest <laughs> read <laughs> ever. But people would be like, bitch, you cannot be reading this book for years. I'm like, I have to literally Google sentence by sentence. I'm like, what does this mean? But it's um, it's, it's just a study. Really what it is, is the study. It's quadrivium. You know what I mean? So it's. Um, yeah. Uh, reading that book as well. Um, and then I'm reading Asada as well, too, which is Asada Shakur's biography, um, autobiography. Uh, so those, I, I'm usually always reading a few books at a time I'm re- uh, because yeah. I don't know, it's just how my brain works, you know what I mean? Um, and then music, constantly music, you know, I, I am listening and making it. I listen to a lot of worship music as well, too, to just not just relax, it's more than just relax, but to 
align myself and to ground myself and to prepare myself for for things. And, um, you know, I listen to all kind of music. Uh, I, I, I like there's this app called Radio with a bunch of O's at the end. And it's this thing mm-hmm. where you can pick a decade and you can pick any country on the globe and it will play for you whatever music was playing in that nation at that time. You know what I mean? So I've I found a lot of really great um, artists and things through that. So I, I yeah, I listen to tons of music. Tinari Wen, Umu Sangare, they give me a lot of life. And then on down to my sisters, you know what I'm saying? Her, Snow Allegra, Jasmine Sullivan. You know, I listen to, I, I fuck with the ladies, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what decade or country are you listening to right now? Oh, let's see. Let me look at my little auntie. Well, probably, let me see. I actually, the funny part is if you asked me, I was actually listening to a song called Total Praise by Grace <laughs> before you called. <laughs> <laughs> so I was listening to Worship. That's decade. I think that's the 2000s for sure. Let's see. Yeah, some 2000s. And it's just, it's worship music, you know what I mean? So that's, yeah. that gets me nice and nice and grounded, you know? The zen, the zen that we need in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my entire music department said, Jazz, you're going to speak to Andra. Ask her when her album is coming out. <laughs> Tell them don't come for me. <laughs> okay, listen, the album actually does drop um, June 4th. So it is coming. I, I can confidently say that June 4th, the singles start dropping again in... Um, uh, next month in April. Um, and the first one, that, the first one that's coming out actually is a song that, um, that I did with Anderson Pack that he produced. So I'm really, really excited about that song. It's a real, like, kind of just, I think Tigress and Tweed was so heavy. So there was mm. another song I was going to come with first, but Tigress and Tweed is, is a weighty song, you know, as a militant song. So I wanted something a little lighter, more summary, just so people could just kind of, you know, watch a sunset and fall in love too, but still think at the same time. You feel me? <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah. I'm so excited. I, definitely excited. I love that. I appreciate you. I'm so happy for you. And oh, thank you. Thank you so much for being on, on the podcast yeah, this week. That's Andra Day, Oscar-nominated star of the United States versus Billie Holiday, now streaming on Hulu. Keith Lucas are perhaps better known as the Lucas Brothers, star of Lucas Brothers Moving Co., as well as guests on series such as Sherman's Showcase, Crashing, Lady Dynamite, and Arrested Development. But now, the identical twin comedians have just earned an Oscar nomination for their work on the original screenplay of Judas and the Black Messiah. The duo recently spoke with Variety's Janelle Riley about the joys of being twins, working together and how they went about pitching the story of Chairman Fred Hampton and William O'Neill when they were best known for their comedic work. They began by talking about whether either of them ever rebelled or wanted to break out of the twin thing. Yeah, I mean, we had that moment in our lives. I mean, we were we both went to separate law schools and that was like the one moment where we got a chance to like forge our own identity and sort of you know, chase individuality, and it was it ended in disaster, of course. But, uh, <laughs> it did it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't know if it was a rebellion so much as it was just like it was an opportunity to finally see like 
how, who am I by myself without right, right. Uh, without being defined by my my twinness? Right. It was interesting. It was interesting. And for anyone listening, and that's Keith. I won't continue to specify, but I'll just specify at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Kenny, what about for you? Uh, I mean, I've always been uh, pretty adamant about my twinness. I think there was a period in law school where I was sort of like torn between being a twin and going to law school with my brother and his relationship. And I chose... uh, New York and a relationship. And I'm happy I did because I got to do comedy and stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I had some issues where I was like, I want to be my own person. I want to see what Kenny's like. And you know, I, I never really enjoyed it. I kind of, I love being <laughs> I, I, I love, I love it. It makes you, yeah. and you have, your, you have your best friend. And I don't know, I, I, I've finally become comfortable with my identity as a twin. For sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. I think singletons, which we call, you know, people who aren't twins. I think that they have... <laughs> They have a big gripe against, you know, twins. They don't, I don't think they like the fact that we're born with like a partner and we're, we're right. born with someone who's our best friend. So I think that there's a little bit of envy and then they right. try to like, they try to tear us apart. Like, oh, why aren't you doing what right. singletons are, are supposed to do? Like, no, twins have a different, we, we, we come from a different uh, space. And right, so it's, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a different existence and we have a different world. We kind of have different language. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different, it's a different culture. It's right, like, right, like right. being a twin is a, it's like a cultural thing. It's hard it's to culture. explain to people. It's like, yeah, we have our own language. We have our own sort of ethos. We have our own environment. And when you're a singleton, you don't, you can't, you don't get it. And it's like, but everything is made for singletons, literally single mm-hmm. bathrooms, the restrooms, are, I mean, uh, airplanes are all, it's all designed by singletons for singletons. Mm-hmm. So we're really the ones, we're really the ones at a disadvantage. We have to adjust our <laughs> lifestyle to right, you guys. Right. And we, right. we we do our we do our best. <laughs> Look, the, the, I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's crazy. It's 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 a it's a wild existence. That's interesting because as a singleton, I feel like everything <laughs> is designed for couples. So right, I feel like it's, right. the grass is always greener. <laughs> right. But even, like the, but, but even like the concept of couple is like a couple of singletons together. It's never yes. like you don't think about a twins with twins. That's never like within the dynamic no. of. The- That's the premise of a bad sitcom. <laughs> Twins together. That's, that is the premise of a bad thing. Also, I'm so fascinated that not just that you're twins, but like I could never work with my sibling. I mean, we're right, very right. different for starters, but like, and then I think about like, is there anyone I could really work with, like writing partners mm. and things like that? Right, right, right. Um, has it just always come naturally to the two of you? Or, you know, do you have your moments that are sort of contentious? You know, that's a great question. I mean, especially when we were starting off in stand up, uh, you know, it's a very like, when you think about stand up again, you conceive of it as an individual on stage talking to a crowd. And so when we were trying to like conceptualize our version of that, you know, we had different POVs. We had different perspectives right. on what on what it means to be a stand-up comedian. And right, so we right. kind of had some tension at the beginning, like trying to figure out like what's the best way for us to present the both of us at stand-ups and not like this, this singular version of the stand-up. So there was definitely right. tension at the beginning, but uh, I think that over time we just we just figured out a way to like work within uh, work within the same space. I mean, we don't really argue as much in terms of our writing. That's been no. very very collaborative. Uh, yeah. I don't know why. Maybe just writing is more conducive to to collaboration. Uh, right. But we we certainly haven't had as much tension uh, in that space. Yeah. No. I yeah. Writing has been totally different. We 
we laugh, we joke, we, we get it done, and we, it's always been fun. Stand-up, like Keith was saying, was content- very contentious at the beginning because we did have different perspectives on how comedy should be done, and neither of us was wrong, but it was, uh, it was just like a process of figuring out how, we, how can we figure out a routine that highlights both of our strengths while, you know, obviously trying to minimize our weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> Um, by the way, I put you guys on 10 comics to watch back in 2014. I think you were the yeah, first. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Ever. I know. <laughs> that, was like, that was my first year yeah, doing it yeah. with De Bruges. Yeah. And, um, right. and then recently, I, uh, a few years ago, I put on Jermaine, and we were talking yeah. recently. And he said, you know, I always thought lists were stupid until I made that list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mentioned well. Jermaine Fowler because right. he has a connection to Judas and the Black Messiah, obviously. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, very important connection. Jermaine Fowler is our brother in arms. Uh, we've 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 uh, we've just been soldiers at war in, in this in, in being comedians, and uh, he's just a dear friend and a great guy all around. But if it wasn't for him, you know, we wouldn't have made the connection with Will Burson yeah. uh, mm-hmm. to help us, you know, get this get this script done. Like, so we were working with Shaka on the story treatment right. uh, in like 2016, 2017. Meanwhile, you know, Burson's working on his own script about right. uh, Hampton and uh, uh, Jermaine knew, he knew both camps. He knew Burson, he knew us. And he basically just made the connection. He was like, why don't you guys yeah. link up and, and, you know, form like Voltron and, 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 and bring it and bring it together. And it was like, yeah. it was the perfect call because, you know, Burson is a, a excellent writer and right. Shaka is a visionary director and, Right. And also an excellent writer. And it was just like right. combining those forces, which just, just took us to the next level, took us over the right. top, I would say. Right, right. I 100% agree. And were, were, was it the two of you who first suggested Lakeith Stanfield to play William O'Neill? No, when we were uh, working with Shaka, we were all in our apartment. Or we were in our apartment in Hollywood and we were having this conversation. And, Sh- and Shaka has worked with Lakeith. Uh, on a oh, short right, film. Right, right. So, and, but I, when we were thinking, we were like, yes. Yeah, uh, Lakeith has to be William O'Neill. Like, there's no, mm-hmm. we there was no other person we thought we right. thought Lakeith was the perfect person. Mm-hmm. And Shaka ag- Shaka agreed. We all agreed, and that we got him to play that role is just. Right. I mean, he kills it, and he and that he got the Academy Award nomination. Just like such a such yeah, a validation yeah. of that of that right, decision. Right. I'm like, he's in a he's in a he's a world class actor, and he mm-hmm. really he really he really stepped his game up. I was so, I think that was the happiest of all the nominees. I was oh so my thrilled to see his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been expecting him to be an Oscar nominee for a few years now. Right, sort right, of surprised right. it was in supporting, but I will take it. Right, right. Look, he, it was crazy because it's like, you know, he wasn't showing up in any of the precursors and people were just writing him off and they were like, you know, he's, but obviously he had, he, he gave a performance that was uh, worthy of awards, but it's weird, like for for not to show up anywhere, and then just to show up that that morning was mm-hmm. was uh, just a, a beautiful surprise. A beautiful I, surprise. I was I was happier for that nomination than ours. I was like, oh. that's that's the nomination <laughs> that makes me very proud. It, it made me very proud. I I don't know uh, again if it was your idea or I, I believe it was, but um, telling the story of Judas and the Black Messiah. It, it's great because you're getting to ta- tell Chairman Fred Hampton's story, but through the right. lens of this William O'Neill, I, I say character, although he's obviously a real person, right, it's right. so fascinating to me. When did you become aware of William O'Neill's story? We became aware of William's story in 2013, right? Mm-hmm. 2013. We were 
2013, we were doing research. We were trying to find what angle we can take on the Fred Hampton story. And we came across this Iron the Prize interview. There's a transcript. Well, actually, we came across William O'Neill in the book, uh, The Assassination of, uh, of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Hawks. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a quick a quick blurb on him, not much. And we were like, holy shit, this is interesting. I didn't know they had informants in the Black Panther Party that were Black Panther. Like, I didn't even, I had no idea this existed. Mm. So then we, we did further research. We came across his Eye on the Prize interview. And, I mean, William O'Neill pretty much laid it out, laid out yeah. the story. We were like, oh, mm -hmm. my God, this is, this is cinema. This is cinema. This is fascinating. This is, right, right. This, is this, this is the crux of a film. And uh, that was what, like, really drew us to William O'Neill. Plus, he's such a complex Shakespearean character, like grappling with these identity issues, grappling with depression. And I was like, I, I just kind of relate to him as a black man in Hollywood. My own identity issues, like, am I black? Am I selling out to the, the white institution? My own struggles with suicide. I'm like, I just, I just related to him in a, in a way that was really strange. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm, I mean, oh, I'm not a no, 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 no. So I've never a day in my life, but I relate. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was going to say, I think like, you know, Fred is like this, it's almost like he's so super, now I don't want to say superhuman, but he's certainly a, her, a heroic figure. A person that I don't think when we see him on screen, we'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm Fred Hampton. I don't think people can see themselves as Fred Hampton because he was so, he was, I think to, to say it uh, uh, plainly, he was so much better than, than people. You know what I mean? He was just yeah. a better person, a better human being. Yeah. Uh, right. He was selfless. He was... Uh, a champion of the people you don't he's like a once in a generation type of person and right. someone like bill o'neill i think is a bit more he's just a bit more human i think people I th in my experience with people i feel like they're more like bill o'neill and not like fred hampton. i don't meet right. too many people like fred hampton willing to die for right. their beliefs willing to stand up for the people willing to sacrifice his own uh his own life for for people you just don't you just don't get people like that so I think it was important to come from Bill Nill's perspective because it, it, it adds a layer of, of, of complexity that I think uh, makes the story even more human. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, and I'm happy to hear, I mean, I, I could guess from seeing the film that there's some empathy for, uh, for William O'Neill because it would be easy for him to be a cardboard villain. Crazy. I, you know, and I know some people don't feel this way. They just hate the guy. But I think right. they do a really good job of like showing how complex he was and how he was really used by the. Right. right. I think that I think that's a testament to to to, to Will and Shaka, uh, just being able to like really really pierce through and 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 make that character just a bit more nuanced. I mean, because when you first read about him, you and hate him. and and you cannot understate Lakeith's performance. Oh yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not underselling Lakeith. I'm just I'm just showing some love to to, to Shaka and Will. But I think they right. they all worked and all of us, we sort of we uh we came together to try to to try to make a film that's that's complex. You know what I mean? Like we, we didn't want to make the the standard biopic. We wanted to show some complexity because it's a very nuanced situation. You know what I mean? You know Bill O'Neill was compelled into a situation that he got over, it got in over his head. And uh, I, I think, again, it's a testament to the, to the filmmakers and, and to, to, to the Keith that they were able to, uh, we were able to bring out like this, 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 this very, very complex character. 
Did you, were you ever in a situation where you were out pitching this story and did people, were people kind of taken aback? Like they expected, I don't know, like a stoner comedy and you come in with this <laughs> amazing, you know, true life story. Well, I mean, honestly, the initial pitch was uh, Bill and Fred. It was a rendition of Bill and Ted. And we were, that's a, that's a bad joke. Bad joke. No, we were, we were out there, we, we were out there pitching it. And I think people were having a hard time, uh, uh, conceptualizing the pitch from us because we were, you know, we're comedians. We're comedians, comedians, and we and we really love the, the art of comedy. So I think I think there there was some sort of uh, trepidation about where the idea was coming from. On top of it being a period piece, on top of it being a, about a black revolutionary socialist, but from the perspective and, of and, and rightfully so. I mean, it's a, right. this is a very hard film to get made. And you know we've never got gotten a film made, so like I I, under, I certainly understand the uh, trepidation, but I, I feel like uh, but once we got Charles and once we right, got Ryan, right. and I think and the Shaka will like, yeah I think the industry was like okay this is an idea that could resonate and 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 register as a as a as a solid film right. because we got right. serious filmmakers right we were we were fortunate enough to team up with some very very talented people that sort of. Yeah, they, they 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 took this. They took it to the next level, and it's again. It's, it was so serendipitous how it, how it worked out. It was almost like it was meant to be. Right. Very, very very. You don't normally get stories like this where you know you have filmmakers who almost like they commit themselves to a cause. You we, right. once you once we once we realized you know this film was really for the the legacy of Fred. It became bigger than all of us. You know what I mean? Right. We all we all realized like, okay, we want to make sure that we make a film that that secures Hampton's legacy. And right. uh, again, again, that's a greater cause for for all of us. And I've never been a part of a film where uh, it was so purposeful just to get this film done and get it made right. And how does it feel to have the world, you know, not just seeing this movie and learning the story, but really embracing it. I mean, people are, are very passionate about this movie. It, you get an Academy Award nomination for your first screenplay out of the gate. That's got to <laughs> be sort of nuts. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, look, e even, e even before the Academy recognition and, and the critical praise and, 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 the, and the commercial success, we were very just, like, fortunate to just get the movie made. Like, to get a movie made about Fred Hampton in Hollywood with a, with a studio backing from Warner Bros. and financing from Macro, it's like, you can't dream of a better situation. Like, I was just fortunate. And to get the approval of the Panthers and Mama Cool and Fred Hampton Jr., like, it just, I, I, I just felt the spirit of Fred emanating through the entire process. So I'm not surprised of the critical evaluation of the film. Am I shocked that it got Academy Award nominations? I mean, who can dream of that? Like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> dreamt of a better, better outcome. I think the funny thing is, like, when we got the six nominations, like, why did we get ten? That, that's what that was my attitude. Like, why did we get ten? You know what I mean? We deserved it. They not, they not became cocky afterwards. Like, we deserved ten. But no, it, it's, it's surreal. It's, it's the most amazing. It, it's the most amazing, amazing experience I've ever had in Hollywood. But for being nominated for or being put on the variety top ten list that you put us on, uh, <laughs> I think it, it was it's it's so sur it's surreal it's crazy man it, it's yeah, it's, it's everything you would ever dream of. It's wild. It's wild. I mean, it's like it's Fred Hampton. It's it's it's, it's one of the most pivotal figures in in the history, and especially in the black community, but I would say throughout history. And just again to be able to to do something to honor his legacy. Now people are right. talking about Fred Hampton. 
now people know his story. I know it's a tragedy, but people also know his ideas and they know, you know, what he stood for. And I, I, right. to see so many people just uh, talking about Fred Hampton, is, that, to me, that's the real victory. And yeah. uh, th- that that's the biggest reward that people are talking about Fred Hampton. Agreed. And, uh, yeah, I, I, we couldn't have, I couldn't have dreamed of a, of a, of the, this is the best possible outcome, you know, being able to be in this industry and making important stories about, uh, figures like Fred Hampton. I mean, it, it doesn't get better than this. That's the Lucas Brothers, Oscar-nominated screenwriters of Judas and the Black Messiah, now in theaters. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Awards Circuit podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Janelle Riley, Clayton Davis, and Michael Schneider, I'm Jazz Tanke, and we'll see you on the circuit. <laughs> <laughs>